A couple of weeks ago, Kathy and I took our family out to uh, Lake Ray Roberts. There was a graduation that was going on out there of a neighbor of ours, and we went out to kind of have a celebration uh, of this guy graduating. And while we were there, one of, one of the guys in the group had a canoe kind of moored to the shore, and Kathy saw it and said, hey, you want to take a canoe trip? So I said, sure. So we asked him, and he said we could, and so we hopped in and untied the rope and got out and started paddling, and, we, and it was a windy day, and we were paddling and paddling and paddling and weren't getting anywhere. And I looked back, and Kathy wasn't paddling. I said, come on, I need you. And so she started paddling, and we made a little headway, and uh, finally decided, well, let's turn around and go with the wind. And so we turned around and went with the wind, and that was a little better. And we stopped after we saw our daughters in a boat, you know, kind of skiing along and doing some stuff. We kind of stopped and watched them and were talking for a second and realized that even with the wind, we weren't moving. And I thought, what an, what an amazing bit of, uh, what do you call it, physics, that the tide was just right and the wind was blowing just right, that we stayed the exact same position away from shore and didn't move. And it was kind of nice, you know, the wind was blowing and we didn't have to do a lot of effort to stay in the same spot. Now, before long, we looked on the shore, and the owner of the canoe is waving at us like this, and uh, he shouts, pull up the anchor. <laughs> so Kathy pulled the anchor up, and you know, that made a big difference. We were able to, uh, to do some paddling and to uh, make some progress in the canoe. We didn't know there was... It was an anchor there. You know, I don't know about you, but life <clears throat> a lot of times feels like canoeing with an anchor. Uh, a lot of effort, but you're not really getting any place. A lot of work, a lot of yard work, a lot of time with this, a lot of time with that. But you don't really feel like there's any progress. You just feel like the book of Ecclesiastes. The sun comes up, the sun goes down, you go to work, you come home. You sit on the couch, you watch your TV, and life is just this cyclical, you know, meaningless, vain repetition. Make a mental note just for a second of the stresses that you've had just this week. Just this week. Make it simple. The top three, if you can think of the top three stressful things that happened in your week, what would they be? Don't shout them out. Just think to yourself. What would they be? How many of your top three, or the things that immediately came to your mind, had to do with a lack of time and a lack of money? Time and money. Our family played a game this week. The first time we've played it, it's called Money Matters. I think it's what it's called. And it's a, a game Larry Burkett put together basically to give you instruction on budgeting and the way, you know, to deal with money. And the uh, way, way it works is you, like, start off with, you know, your monthly salary, and everybody's got a different monthly salary in the game, and you go around the board, and you come back around and go. It's like the beginning of the month, and you get another salary. But all the way around, you, like, pay your taxes, and you land on this, and you have to pay your mortgage, and you land on this and everything. It's basically like what you do every month. And uh, our oldest daughter, Sarah, said they shouldn't call this money matters. They should call it life. Oh, that's right, isn't it? 
Because the things that we most concern ourselves with, it seems so often, are money and time, and often not enough of each. Money and time, they are both resources, they are both limited, they both require choices of how they're spent. 30 years ago, remember the Eagles used to sing? David, you remember it's been 30 years ago? You can spend all your time making money. You can spend all your love making time. And that's our culture, isn't it? 30 years ago and still today. Time is money, is our credo. And we do the best we can to try to either spend money to get time or spend time to get money. But this seems to encapsulate the whole purpose for our, our living. What does the Bible have to say about these basic things, time and money. Well, let's look at that. Open to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25. <clears throat> Our series on the spiritual disciplines is intended to encourage you to take stock of the basics. The book of Hebrews says, you know, let us therefore move on from these basic things. And yet when he says that, moving on, he doesn't mean that you forget them. He means, he means let's, let's grow. You've got these basic things and let's grow. But often you need to come back to these basic things. You know, with, uh, with eating, it's meat and potatoes. With football, it's block and tackle. These are the basic things that you have to always come back to and make sure, make sure that you do the basics well. Because otherwise, all the extra things that you want to do are going to be sitting on a, on a crumbling foundation. The basics of the spiritual life are these disciplines, not that which we do to earn God's favor. As we've talked about in our series, there is nothing you can do to impress God. You can't earn your way to heaven. Uh, you can't earn points with God. Instead, by placing your faith in Jesus Christ, Christ's righteousness is placed on you. And so when you believe that Jesus died for your sins, all your sins are removed, and the righteousness of Christ is what God sees when he sees you. So then why we spend our time doing all this stuff if it's not to impress God? As we've seen in our series, reading the Bible, prayer, uh, time spent serving him. Uh, last week we saw obedience and worship. These various things are not things that we do to to impress God, they are things we do in order to grow, in order to be obedient, grateful servants of the one who died for us. And today we're looking at what the Bible calls stewardship. In Matthew 25, starting in verse 14, Jesus tells a story or a parable, and it goes all the way down through verse 30. So look at your Bible and follow this story with me. As I read it, this is what Jesus said. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability, and he went away on his journey. Immediately, the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. 
But he who received the one talent went away and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. And the one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. The one also who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore take away the talent from him, and give it to the one who has the ten talents. And now Jesus wraps it up. Now he's done with his story, and now he makes a moral. He says, For to everyone who has shall more be given, and he shall have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. And cast out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This story is also recorded in Luke's gospel, in the gospel of Luke. And in that story there, just prior to the story, Luke tells us that Jesus told this parable, this story, for a purpose. And that purpose was because many people assumed that the kingdom of God was about to come. They assumed the kingdom of God was about to come, therefore he told this parable. And in light of that, what is this parable teaching? Well, it's teaching, obviously, that Jesus is the master, and he's about to go away on a journey. They assumed, his disciples assumed, the kingdom was going to come right away. We're headed to Jerusalem, and here comes the kingdom. We've got the king, here comes the kingdom. And yet Jesus teaches this parable to show, no, I'm going to go away on a journey, and then I'll come back, and will come the kingdom. And while I'm gone, I expect things to be done with what I give you. And so the parable we see here is of those who are servants, and really of the so-called servants. And by that, I mean this last guy who had the one talent, and who looked at his master. He said, I see you as a hard man and as an unjust man. And we see at the end of this, as the parable is wrapped up, that this worthless slave is one who is cast into outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth, which we know throughout Scripture to be a description of hell. Now that guy is not so much the guy I want us to focus on as the other two, because for most of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, that is the application of stewardship. To be a steward 
is to be one who is responsible for somebody else's stuff, to be responsible for somebody else's possessions. And as we see in this parable, this master left his possessions in the care of some slaves, some servants, and expected that they would do something with his possessions and not just sit on them, which is what this last guy did. And the ones who, um, the one who had the ten, worked it and produced more from that. The one who had the five worked it and produced more from that. And notice, if you, if you look even here in the English, it's that way in the Greek, but it's also this way in the English, that Jesus, or the, the master's commendation to these two good and faithful slaves are exactly identical. Word for word, he says exactly the same thing to the one who had ten as the one who had five. And one of the things that teaches is it doesn't matter how much God's given you. What matters is your faithfulness with what he's given. The same commendation will be given. And we also see that faithfulness in these little things, serving him with what he's given you now, is is an opportunity or really preparation for greater service when he returns. Just as in this parable, Jesus has gone away, and until he returns, we are to be stewards of what isn't ours. Or you could say it this way. We are not simply recipients of God's gifts. We are stewards of them. God has given gifts to you and to me, not simply for us, but for us to care for, for us to be responsible for, and for us to use in his interest not simply our own. Last week, my dad and I went to see Spider-Man, and there's a line in it that they used again from the first one because it was a very popular line. It's one that Stan Lee, in fact, put in their Spider-Man some, what was it, 50-something years ago now when he wrote the comic strip originally. And it was this line, with great power, there must also come great responsibility. With great power, there comes great responsibility. See, the folks at Enron learned this the hard way, that justice doesn't permit an abuse of power, but that those who have great power, justice also expects great responsibility. Jesus, in another place, said it this way, From everyone to whom much has been given, much will be required. And from the one to whom much has been entrusted, more will be demanded. So what is it that Jesus has left us with? He's gone to heaven with the promise that he will one day return, that where he is we may be also. What has he left us in care of? What are his possessions that he's left us in care of? Well, we're going to talk in a couple of weeks about gifts or spiritual gifts. And that's kind of a a possession in and of itself. So we're going to save it. But what is it that we've already mentioned as a very precious commodity, a couple of them, time and money that he has given. It is, it is that which often drives our lives. Time and money, how will you use them? Notice both are in this parable. The talent is an amount of money. To one, he was given, you know, ten amounts of money. To another, was given five amounts of money. To another, one. And they were responsible for how they used, in this particular parable, money. And there was also an issue of time. 
The master left, the master will return. It is a fixed amount of time. We don't know how much time it is, but there is a fixed, limited amount of time. So both of these resources you also see in this parable. Jesus Christ had more to say about money than he did about heaven and hell combined. You read throughout the Gospels and you would think, boy, Jesus is going to be talking about heaven and hell all throughout it, and he does. But he talks about money even more than that. In fact, one of the things that Jesus said is a little earlier in Matthew. Just look at the screen at Matthew 6. Jesus said, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus said this some 2,000 years ago, and it is still the number one idol in challenging our relationship with God. Where do our needs come from? What is the basis of our security? What do we look for to have a good night's sleep at night? Is it money in the bank? Or is it our Heavenly Father? And in that same sermon in Matthew 6, where Jesus made this statement, he also made this statement, Seek first God's kingdom. The world, it seeks for clothes. What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? It seeks these things. Jesus says, look, look at the birds, look at the flowers. God takes care of them. Aren't you more valuable than them? You seek first his kingdom. That's your work. You seek first his righteousness. That's your character. And all these other things, they will be added to you as well. Solomon wrote this, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves abundance with its income. This, too, is vanity. The irony is, you can't get enough of the one you worship. With money, you, uh, if you love money, you're not going to be satisfied with it. You can't get enough. But the wonderful twist of that is, if you worship God, you can't get enough of him, and yet, ironically, there is contentment there. What you worship, you will yearn to have more of. If it's money, you can't ever get enough. If it's God, you can't ever get enough. But the irony, the great difference is, with one there is contentment, with one there is great discontent. Money often defines our success. Men want to make it, women want to marry it. And yet, ironically, it's on our money itself is printed in God we trust. Billy Graham made a great statement. He said, if a person can get his attitude toward money straight, it will help straighten out almost every other area of his life. Basically stemming from what Jesus said, you can't serve both God and money. You're going to have to choose. King David provides a great balance. When he had collected money for building of the temple in Jerusalem, he made a statement to the Lord in prayer. Look at this, 1 Chronicles 29. O Lord our God, as for all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name, it comes from your hand and all of it belongs to you. The very first checkpoint in looking at money is who owns all this stuff. And David, a very wealthy man, said, Lord, it's yours. 
It's all yours. That even which we've provided to build you a temple, it all comes from you, and we're giving it back to you. A great balance. The first checkpoint is who owns this stuff? Is it the Lord's or is it mine? It's a subtle temptation. Because we work, we clock hours, and we see, relative to those hours, an amount of money. We work and push and maybe get a particular commission because we've done something special. We see reflected in our work, our money. And so we tend to think it has to do with all of us. And yet, as in that song that we sang, uh, God who's giving knows no ending. That song talks about the fact that it's God who gives us the strength to work. It's God who gives us the intellect to make the money. Here's a truth from the scripture that we know, but we often ignore. And it's this. Regarding our money, God owns the rights, and we have the responsibilities to use it for him. We are big on rights in America, aren't we? Rights and entitlements. We are big on those. You can't say that to me because I've got my rights. I am entitled to such and so because that's the way it's always been. And we'll go and hire lawyers to make sure that we get what we deserve. And there is, amount, there is an amount of that that is perfectly legitimate because God is a God of justice and gave us governments for that purpose. But there is also a mindset that goes with that, particularly in our culture, that we have a right to everything in our life, especially our money. And reality is God owns the rights to everything. Most books in my library have my name on it. And those that don't, I just haven't gotten around to it yet. My house has my name on it. My car has my name on it. And yet it's not mine. None of it. None of that is mine. None of it is ours. It's God's. And I am, we are, but his stewards to use until he comes again. And we are going to give an account for that which we've been entrusted. I think this is what Jesus meant when he said, no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his possessions. It doesn't mean you've got to sell everything and go to missions in the Congo. What that means is that you have transferred ownership of all your possessions to God because God tolerates no rivals at all. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. All of it. No devotion goes to any, any other thing. God is not like the electric bill. You know, when you give to God, you're not paying a bill. You don't worship the electric company. Giving is an act of worship. Like the sacrifices of old. Uh, I heard a message, or part of a message, that Chuck Swindoll gave this week on Job. And in it, he talked about uh, how Job, Job's friends were to bring bulls and how valuable a bull is in the ancient times. Because, I mean, those of you who've got cattle, a bull's a valuable thing. You've probably only got one or two of them, and maybe 20 cows. Because that bull can take care of reproducing for that whole herd. It's a very valuable animal. And yet Job's friends were told to bring that which is extremely valuable to them as a payment for their sin. Now, you and I don't have to 
give what we call our offerings, just like in the Old Testament, to pay for our sin, Christ has taken care of that. But we still bring our first fruits, as it were, and give to God as an act of worship. We don't worship the electric company. That's a bill and obligation that we pay. But the Lord says, when you give to the ministry, let your right hand not know what your left is doing. Let it be in secret. Uh, let a man give graciously, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God isn't a bill to be paid. He is our God whom we worship. Almost 40%, Barna research shows almost 40% of Americans feel that their primary felt need in life is money. I was at a convenience store some time ago getting a Coke or coffee or something, I don't remember, and there was a lady in front of me bought lottery tickets. And this happens like all the time, but this particular lady bought like 30 bucks worth of lottery tickets. And she knew what to call them too. You know, give me, you know, nine bucks a quick, quick this and lucky this and all this. And, and uh, so, you know, they rip them off and give them to her and she hands the 30 bucks over. And I asked her, you know, as she turned around, I said, hey, you know, do you ever, do you ever break even? And she looked at me with a big smile and said, sometimes. You know what that means? That means no. <laughs> the annual amount spent on lottery tickets in the 36 states that operate lotteries is $24.4 billion. Benjamin Franklin said, Who is rich? He that is content. Who is content? Nobody. Benjamin Franklin. Again, listen to what Swindoll said. He said this, quote, It's been my observation that worriers are basically dissatisfied people. Something is never quite right. When one thing is fixed, something else is out of whack. Contentment with the way things are, even knowing that God could change them if he wished, is a mindset that is foreign to the worrier. What is, is not enjoyed because of what could be. Whoever chooses to live like that should be ready for a lifetime of dissatisfaction. Again, earlier in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, don't worry about these physical necessities, because worry suggests basically dependence on these things. And he used an interesting word there for anxious when he says, do not worry or do not be anxious. The original word that he used in that context for, for anxious is a word that, that comes from two words, one to divide, and the other is the mind. To have a divided mind is to be anxious or to worry about these things. That your mind is not seeking first his kingdom, but it's divided. And your allegiance is divided. Interestingly, Jesus used that same word when he talks about, uh, in that story of Mary and Martha. Remember the story of Mary and Martha? Where uh, they're... Jesus is in their house, and Martha is scurrying around, you know, preparing a meal, and Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet listening to him teach. And Martha gets mad at her, at her sister, just sitting there while she's doing all the work, and so she tells Jesus, hey, Jesus, tell her to get up and help me. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are worried about many things. And that's the word Jesus used. You have a divided mind, a distracted mind from what is really important. Regarding our money, we're told, God owns the rights. 
we have the responsibility to use it as he would be pleased for it to be used. Would you like it if every day the bank direct deposited $1,440 into your account? $1,440 every single day into your account. That'd be great. That's almost half a million a year. The only catch is, at the end of that day, it's zeroed out. And then the next day, 1440 again. Now, if you knew that you'd lose it if you didn't use it, you'd use it, wouldn't you? I mean, every one of us would be the greatest stewards on the planet to make sure every one of those pennies was either invested or given or using to pay this or that. We would make sure that would happen. Oh, that's not going to happen regarding money. But you know what? That happens regarding time. Because every, every morning at midnight, while you're asleep and I'm asleep, well, some, I'm asleep, some of y'all probably aren't asleep at midnight, 1,440 minutes for the next day. And for the previous day, are done. That's how many minutes you get each day. 1,440. And when it's gone, it's gone. Never to come again. You ever walked in a graveyard and seen all the stones in a graveyard? What do you see there? You see a, a date, born, date, died, and then a dash in between. A life represented by a dash. And the older you get, the more life seems like a dash, doesn't it? Our family went to uh, a camp for vacation uh, a couple months ago. And at this camp, they had a ropes course. And there was a, a girl, lady, she was 18, you know, I'm not real sure what to call it. I guess technically she's a lady. She was uh, doing the ropes course, you know, for us. And I don't know how we got on the subject, but we got on the subject of when she was born. And I, I, I said, you were born in what, 70s or something like that? She says, no, the 80s. I said, the 80s? I said, what year? She says, 1985. 1985? 1985 was when I graduated from high school. I said, do you know I graduated from high school when you were born? When you were born, I was your age. She kind of went, oh. And I said, now, now answer me something honestly. I said, do I seem old to you? And I thought she was going to say, oh, no. You know, come on. You know what she said? She said, well, yeah. Uh, me? No. I'm not old. I remember walking on the college campus of UNT some years ago thinking, when I was here, that person wasn't born. And then just this week, I was walking out. Sometimes I'll park back in this back alley. I was walking out, and there was an elderly man in a wheelchair going down the street, and he saw me, and he said, he said well, have a good day, young man. Just out of the blue. Have a good day, young man. And I thought, you need to talk to that girl over in Tyler. <laughs> you think I'm a young man, and she thinks I'm old. And I'm not old. It's all perspective, isn't it? The longer you live, the more precious time becomes. And the smaller that dash gets, it seems, on the tombstone. Paul told the Ephesian church a text that we have looked at and taught from this pulpit I don't know how many times, and yet there's not a better one.
Paul told the Ephesian church in Ephesians 5, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Paul commands that we give careful attention to how we live, particularly as to the wise use of time. Making the most of your time, or literally redeeming the time. The word for redeem represents a purchase. We talk about redeeming a coupon, or redeeming this or that. We're talking about buying something, making a purchase. And this word represents a purchase made to where you would buy something out completely doesn't mean you go and you buy something from Walmart. It means that they're having a 90% off sale and you clean out the shelf. You totally buy up the time. Redeem the time. And the word here for time is the word not for a lifetime, but for a season of life. The time right now. If you've got the NIV, it says opportunity. Totally redeem and buy out the opportunity that you have right here and now. Because you've only got 1440 minutes per day. And none of us is promised a tomorrow. Proverbs 27 verse 1 says, Do not boast about tomorrow because you do not know what a day will bring forth. James, Jesus' baby brother James, says, uh, What is your life? You are like a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. As it is, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, all such boasting, tomorrow we will do such and so. All such boasting, he says, is evil. That's the same thing Paul is saying. The days are evil. And in the context of Ephesians 5, he's talking about an evil that is very active. You're walking as wise, not as the unwise. The unwise make the most of their time. Their philosophy is eat, drink, because tomorrow we die. Their philosophy is pretty accurate for a humanist or those who don't believe in the Lord, or their mindset is totally consumed in themselves. You know, hey, live it up, because, you know, we may not be around tomorrow. Tomorrow we're just dirt. Paul says part of that is true, in that you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. But make what time you do have count, because you do know that you're more than dirt, that you're made in the image of God, and that he has given you time as a steward to use wisely. You could say it this way, regarding our time, God owns the rights and we have the responsibilities to use it for him. Exactly the same truth as with money as with time. God's the one who's got the right on how much time you've got in life. That day is set and every second clicks closer to your death. Every single second clicks closer to your death and to mine. The English skeptic Thomas Hobbes said, quote, If I had the whole world, I would give it to live one day. That's what he said at the end of his life. The French unbeliever Voltaire told his doctor, he says, I'll give you half of everything I'm worth if you'll give me six months more to live. In fact, the nurse that attended Voltaire as he was dying said that Voltaire's screams were so horrid as an unbeliever she said, for all the money in Europe, I don't want to attend another death of an unbeliever. As Voltaire faced what he had as an uncertain future, that if life is all you got, he'd give everything he has, or half of everything he's worth, 
to stay alive. I've been to more funerals in the past six months than in the past six years. And with all those reminders that we are mortal is a reminder that time is precious and that it can't be wasted, that it shouldn't be wasted. Remember that song Jim Croce sang, Time in a Bottle? There never seems to be much time to do the things you want to do until you find them. You know what's ironic about that song? By the time he had recorded it and it was on the airwaves, Croce's plane had crashed and he was dead. Kind of an eerie epitaph to Croce's life. There never seems to be enough time to do the things you want to do once you find them. Wrote the song, recorded the song, big hit, but he was dead. The Apostle John wrote, the world and its desires are passing away, but the man who does the will of God abides forever. That is the perspective we're meant to have. This world is not our home. We're just a passing through. The perspective that we're to have is one that is eternal. Christ has died for us. Christ is coming again for us. And in the meantime, with those two bookends, we are stewards of what he's given. One of the top two that we've got are time and money. And you spend it every single day. How do you spend it? For him or simply for yourself? Wouldn't it be great? I've often envied Joshua as he stood there in the valley of Ajalon and said, Sun, stand still. And it did. Joshua needed a little more light in the day. And God made the sun stand still. Gave Joshua a little more time to uh, wipe out, uh, who was it, Midianites or whoever. Wouldn't that be great? You got a deadline? Sun, stand still. You got just a little more time. Doesn't happen though, does it? The clock faithfully ticks away. Moses prayed in Psalm 90, teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Solomon wrote, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, because in the grave where you are going, there is neither working, nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. He said, there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. A season. Just like Paul said in Ephesians 5, there is a season. Make the most of every season, every opportunity. So wherever you are in life right now, as a parent of young children, as a single, as an empty nester, as an elderly person, or as a young teenager uh, or child, wherever you are, that is a season. It will not always be like that. Eventually, somebody younger than you is going to say, hey, you look old. Somebody older than you is going to say, have a good day, young man. It's only a season. And I've got to redeem it, and so do you, because it will never come again. And one of the great things in our natural world is that the seasons rotate. We can enjoy winter, and when it's gone, we go, oh boy, well, next winter will be fun. In life, it's not like that. When the spring is gone, it's gone. When the summer's gone, it's gone. When the winter's gone, it's gone. Whenever season of life is gone, it's gone, and you're in the next one, only looking to the next one. We are not simply recipients of God's gifts. We are stewards of God's gifts. How are you going to use that time for God's glory? How are you going to use that money for God's glory? You will use it. Remember, God's got the rights, and ours are but the responsibility. Let's pray.
Father, I give thanks today. We give thanks today that we will never, Lord willing, we will never scream like Voltaire did, that uh, we yearn to have six months more of life facing an uncertain future. Lord, we know our future. The Lord Jesus has made it crystal clear that he has gone to heaven, that he will come back one day and take us back there with him. Our future is certain. Our eternity is certain. And yet what we don't know is what's going to happen tomorrow. We are uncertain of our time here on earth, how much we have, and to some extent exactly how you want us to spend our time. Lord, your word gives us parameters, but the details, Lord, you have left to us to make the daily decision how we will spend our time, how we will spend our money, requiring of us that we would spend it for you. So, Father, I I pray that you would help us to be good stewards, that as you have brought to our minds, as our time in the text today, you've brought to our minds things that we must change, things in our life where we have not been stewards for you, but we have been stewards for ourselves. I pray that you'd give us the moral courage, the strength, the diligence, the discipline to be good stewards. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Lord bless you. Hi, this is Wayne Stiles. You can receive a weekly devotional by email by subscribing to my blog at waynestyles.com. There you'll also find resources for devotional and Bible land study, as well as a way for us to connect via Facebook and Twitter. There's even an opportunity to support this weekly podcast with a donation. That's waynestyles.com. Thanks for listening.